From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Well, 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 thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your cab, your RV, your camper, your diner, your cabin in the woods. A special hello to those of you listening in on TalkZone.com and the Conspiracy Show app. And finally, a hearty how-do to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, a growing list of affiliates. Uh, Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications, is here in studio, and um, uh, we are expecting to reach out to the United Kingdom, where Robbie Graham, we're hoping, is standing by on the line from merry old England to talk about uh, UFOs and Hollywood. Uh, still waiting on an official date, air date, uh, for season four of the TV show, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Brand new episodes, uh, set to debut across Canada on Vision TV very soon. Uh, the, um, I believe it's seasons one and two now available for rent or uh, purchase in HD on Amazon.com. So many ways to watch, so many ways to listen. Uh, don't forget to get on up to the uh, website strangeplanet.ca and check out the live events page. As in the days of Noah, happening Wednesday, November the 4th at the University of Toronto, L.A. Marzuli and Carl Gallops live on stage with yours truly. This is an evening event, 7 to 10 p.m. at the Oise Auditorium. U of T, St. George campus, as in the days of Noah, and we'll be talking about the return of the Nephilim, the alien abduction phenomenon, and the trumpet days of Revelation. Again, tickets going fast. Don't miss out on this exclusive event. L.A. Marzulli, author of the Nephilim Trilogy, and Carl Gallops, author of Final Warning, Wednesday, November 4th, U of T. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the live event page for details and to order tickets. Hope to see you there. All right. Victor Vigiani, welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm just fine. It seems like you're on a good flight path this evening. <laughs> well, yes, but uh, no beverage cart. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Nonetheless, we, um, it's been a little while since uh, you and I have, had, have been in the studio together. Yes. How have you been? Uh, just fine, thank you. Just fine. Just up to a number of different things uh, here and there, coming and going, and trying to keep the middle between both ends. Uh, we are, uh, as I mentioned, awaiting the arrival of um, uh, Robbie Graham. Uh, who is the author of Silver Screen Saucers, sorting fact from fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies. Uh, now, we've had him on before, and mm-hmm. uh, you were mentioning that this book started out as a, a university thesis for him. Apparently, yes. Um, he and um, Matthew Alford, uh, his, his um, uh, compatriot, uh, were doing research on Hollywood and UFOs and different things like that. And I believe that Robbie was in the middle of a dissertation or presenting one. And then I think it, uh, if I have my facts right, it consumed him and he just went in the, in the direction of a book rather than in a thesis. And I'm not sure if he's actually presented a thesis or he just focused all on the book or not. We can find that out a little bit later, but I think that's the direction that it took. All right. I'm, I, I'm told we've reached him and, um, he's just going to call back on a better line. But okay. while we're waiting for Robbie to join mm-hmm. us, I want to, this is our first opportunity to talk about. Uh, this is a, a potentially monumental story. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about NASA's Kepler, Kepler telescope. Uh, and, uh, apparently has spotted this potentially 
an alien megastructure some 1,500 light years uh, from us. They noticed uh, this star uh, behaving in a very erratic fashion uh, without going into you know too many of the technical details. The last I've heard is NASA is saying there is a 50-50 chance uh, this star uh, or this this um, the the light from this star is acting this way because again there is this man-made if I can use that term or alien megastructure that is passing in front of it. What do you make of this story? Well, I've I've been following it uh, from a little bit of a distance because as soon as stuff like this comes out, I'm automatically skeptical because uh, NASA has a way of releasing information and skewing, skewing it in its own way. And uh, from that perspective, I, I don't know exactly what to make of it. But in the reading that I've done, uh, the one thing that has impressed me is the word artificial, that whatever's uh, emanating from this particular ring or, or, or level, whatever it happens to be, a mass of mature light, it appears to be in some way, shape, or form artificial. And uh, NASA has never ever, ever um, reported anything in space. And this is the big part of the story, Richard. NASA has never, ever reported something that's, other than them putting it up in space themselves, artificial in space uh, throughout the cosmos. And I think this is the biggest um, angle of the story. What it might be, who knows? But the fact that NASA is promulgating or putting forward the idea that this might be an artificial entity is massive. Because if it is artificial, we can only wonder what the next question is going to be. Well, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but did they not say it's 50-50? Well, NASA, like I said, NASA has a propensity of putting this information out and skewing it in its own way. Right. Now, when they say 50-50, it can go either way. Now, I, I, would, I would imagine at some point they're going to say, no, it, we were wrong. It was just some sort of light anomaly, and, or Kepler picked up different wavelengths in this, within the spectrum, and it was, in fact, uh, you know, a, a cosmic entity that's just a natural part of the, of the cosmos. I'm fully expecting it to turn around that way. But for them to even hint at the fact that it could be artificial right. is, is, is something. It, it's, it's, I think it's a landmark. It's a bookmark in this whole idea of, of uh, you know, who is out there and who might create these kind of things. And in a similar fashion to the things that, that supposedly to the structures that are on Mars or the structures that are on, on the, the far side of the moon. So they've never really ad- admitted that because they airbrush that stuff out anyways. They have no way of airbrushing this stuff out yet. All they can do is make uh, statements about it. All right. Well, I, I'm I'm amazed that you know maybe I shouldn't be. Let me back up. I'm not that surprised. But a story of this magnitude, you would think you know front page New York Times. This could be potentially the greatest story of all time. I mean, someone once compared it to you know like. Columbus discovering America. Nay, it's much bigger than that. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> well, if we remember the the, the monolith in, in the in the movie in the uh, two thousand and one, remember right. the monolith on that's the, it's the same kind of thing with the that that kind of artificial structure on the moon. It's the same sort of paradigm shift that just may occur if NASA is correct and they're fifty percent saying that might be artificial. But it's it's a it's a crapshoot as far as I'm concerned. All right. Well, maybe at some point uh, sure. during the next forty minutes, we'll get Robbie Graham to weigh in on that. But he has joined us from the. 
UK. And Robbie is, as I mentioned, the author of Silver Screen Saucers, Sorting Fact from Fantasy in Hollywood's UFO Movies. He's been interviewed on uh, this topic for BBC Radio, Coast to Coast. Uh, we've talked about uh, on this program. He's been interviewed at Vanity Fair. Among others, his articles have appeared in a variety of publications, including The Guardian, New Statesman, Film Facts, Fortean Times, and the peer-reviewed Journal of North American Studies, 49th Parallel. He holds a first-class honors degree in film, television, and radio studies from Staffordshire University and a master's degree with distinction in cinema studies from the University of Bristol. Robbie Graham, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello. Hey, Richard. Hey, Victor. How's it going? Good to be with you. Great to have you. Thank you. Uh, this has been, um, this book, uh, in the works for some time. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the genesis. It started out as a thesis, correct? That's right. I mean, um, my writings on this initially started in around um, 2006, 2007, this interplay between UFOs and Hollywood. Um, I started writing some articles for various magazines, but then I started to focus on it in a serious way in 2009 when it was a doctoral thesis at the University of Bristol. And it morphed slowly into something more populist. Um, but it took so long because I didn't want this to be just another throwaway book. I wanted it to have lasting value for you know any serious researcher of this subject. Um, but mainly, you know, there's just so much material that one has to understand before putting pen to paper, so to speak. Uh, you know, the book documents and analyzes almost seven decades worth of UFO movies uh, and also almost seven decades worth of UFOs and ufology. So it's, it's really a cultural and political history of the interplay between UFOs and Hollywood, and it required a tremendous amount of research. Um, a lot of this research was uh, primary original interviews with uh, Hollywood writers, directors, producers, and even UFO experiences as well. So this is a very big project, and um, I hope that the end product has, has been worth it. Is there a, a trend? I mean, I don't know where you, you begin uh, in terms of tracking Hollywood's depiction of UFOs. You know, we can go back to the 1950s and some of the schlocky films, Abbott and Costello go to Mars and so forth. I remember seeing that. Uh, but, I mean, is, is there a, a discernible trend uh, over the seven decades, uh, in terms of the the the, um, the direction, the trajectory of the message that is being, is it cohesive or is it all over the place? In terms of the message that Hollywood is sending us about the UFO ET issue. Well, before getting into that, I mean, I think the nature of the question you're posing there is basically this this idea of, of uh, UFO movies following a natural cultural path or a political conspiratorial one, um, this idea of a message behind them, whether the message itself is, is something that's naturally evolved or has been, uh, or has been seeded and, and, uh, and encouraged. And ultimately the focus of what, of what I've done is both cultural and political. It addresses the political dimension of Hollywood's engagement with UFOs, how the government and military have exploited cinema to manage and shape popular perceptions and expectations of UFOs and alien visitation. But it also looks uh, what is, by and large, a natural cultural process through which cinema is fed off and popularized uh, ufological ideas and debates. So it takes otherwise fringe ideas and incorporates them into the narratives 
and in the process it thrusts them you know to the forefront of popular culture so things like men in black close encounters of the third kind of the fourth kind area 51 hollywood didn't create these terms they were all part of the common language of ufology decades before hollywood lifted them uh you know my position is that ufos unidentified flying objects are real which is to say that they exist independently of cinema and of pop culture more broadly. You know, UFOs have been investigated by governments around the world for almost seven decades. And what the phenomenon represents is, of course, open for debate. And various theories have been propounded from secret military aircraft to natural phenomena, otherworldly intelligences, and even you know, untapped human potential. The point is that in a world without movies, people would continue to report UFOs. People were reporting UFOs and even flying saucers long before Hollywood got in on the act. Robbie, let me just jump in here. Apologies, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back and and continue to discuss Hollywood's uh, presentation of the UFO or depiction of the UFO ET issue. Victor Vigiani from Z-Land Communications in studio, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Robbie Graham is with us, the author of Silver Screen Saucers, sorting fact and fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies. And uh, Victor Vigiani is with us, executive director of Zeeland Communications. Robbie, before the break, we sort of interrupted and you were uh, explaining... Uh, I had asked you about the um, whether there's a sort of a trend uh, coming out of Hollywood in terms of the depiction that you could sort of plot over the seven decades, and you were sort of in the midst of explaining that. Yeah, um, so, I mean, overwhelmingly, Hollywood's depictions of the UFO phenomenon have been negative. Um, you've had uh, an overarching narrative of alien invasion, from 1951, really, 1950-51, uh, through to present day. Now, within those sort of seven decades, approximately, you've had a smattering of, um, of, of movies in which extraterrestrials visit us with, with benevolent intent. Um, but overwhelmingly, as I say, we've, we've experienced invasion at the cinema. And, you know, some people suggest with, within the UFO community, for example, that this is part of a strategy to demonize and vilify potential alien life um, and that this is a military strategy. Um, now, certainly there may be merit to that. You know, if there are, if there are elements within officialism who have uh, an, an understanding and awareness of uh, intelligences behind the UFO phenomenon, uh, regardless of their true intent, the, the beings that is, then it would certainly be uh, natural for the military-industrial complex to want to vilify uh, any potential uh, interstellar neighbours we might have, because from a military mindset, anything that's different is essentially a, a potential threat, um, and certainly that would extend to, to the idea of advanced extraterrestrial intelligences. Um, but the more mundane explanation, of course, is that uh, you know uh, it's movies about extraterrestrial life uh, where you've got, you know, friendly conversations between enlightened space beings and and, uh, peaceful humans are arguably um, harder to write um, in a... uh, in a a kind of a a profound way than than a a movie about, you know, a mothership blowing up New York. Sure, drama is about conflict. We need, you know, conflict is is what sells movie tickets. Well, it is, and it always has been. You know, it's about spectacle as well. Cinema is a spectacular medium, and uh, you know, studios are always looking for something that's that's uh, that's going to be literally explosive at the box office. And if you've got uh, 
spectacular scenes of motherships over cities, and if you've got you know fantastic special effects depicting exotic-looking extraterrestrials, you know, wiping out humanity, uh, then then that's to them uh, more appealing and and uh, and equates to to more books at the box office. Whereas something that's uh, a profound, uh, you know, um, uh, philosophical exploration of the nature of, of humanity and the nature of life in the universe uh, is, is harder to write. I mean, it, it simply is. Um, and, and also, again, it, it lacks conflict um, or it lacks obvious conflict. And so it's always been the inclination of Hollywood studios um, to back projects where you've got, uh, you know, um, demonic extraterrestrials. And, and that, certainly that's been the trend, as I say, since the 1950s. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think that you know the most obvious explanation is uh, is the, the bottom line, which is which is uh, the box office. All right, let's work uh, Victor Vigiani in here from Zealand. How you doing, Robbie? Hi there. Good to talk to you. Again. Not too bad at all. Uh, listen, I, I want to congratulate you on on this book because um, I, I've been a big fan of for many many years uh, Terry Hansen, who wrote Missing Times way back. I think the second mm-hmm. edition was published, and you know, you're familiar with in uh, 2012. And I think his yeah, um, you know his, the Missing Times news media complicity in the UFO cover up was probably the seminal work in looking at how media really uh, approaches the whole UFO issue, the whole the idea both culturally and politically. And I think yours uh, your your book sets the next, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the next bookmark in, in this this kind of work. Um, is, oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I'd like to get your 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 take on how the idea of film as media has sort of um, really it, it goes beyond what I think Terry did in, in certain ways in, in implanting a message in, in the in the human consciousness about the issue of UFOs and, and the extraterrestrial presence. It's really a um, you've done a great job in, in, in outlining how uh, media or film more so has really implanted a message in, in the human uh, psyche. Um, could you talk about that for a moment? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to look at the power of cinema itself as a medium. Cinema has this essential mystical ability to detach us, essentially, from our our physical environment and transport us to another more vivid realm of perception. It's, you know, a realm where everything's both illusory and yet strangely real. You know, in film studies, anything that exists within the world of the film is known as digesis. So the cinema screen separates there the character's fictional world from our so-called real world but actually the diegesis seeps through the screen and into our world and it, it, it comes into our subconscious and it becomes part of our reality you know, and, and key to cinema's power is that movies in their uh, you know slick neatly packaged self-contained way do actually narrativize and contextualize the events and debates and, and processes that constitute our non-narrative world and that's it's you know, we live in a very frustrating non-narrative world, but movies usually make sense of this. You know, life rarely makes sense, but movies usually do. And we do take comfort in that, but therein lies the problem because movies, no matter how realistic they are in the events that they are depicting, are not real life. They are, you know, reflections of our reality. They're snapshots of it. And they're skewed and distorted through the ideological framework of, of the people who have made them. And... The, the the problem with movies is that they masquerade as the the final word on any given topic. So no matter what the subject, and regardless of how much that subject has already been written about and debated, once it's committed to film, 
you know, once it's received the, the Hollywood treatment, it's, it's embedded uh, firmly into the popular consciousness and it's, it's imprinted on our psyche. So, uh, you know, I've used this example before, but, you know, for example, if I say the word Titanic, what do you think of? Do you think of the event or do you, or do you think of the, of the James Cameron movie? If I say, you know, if I say to a certain generation, to a newer generation, D-Day landings, I challenge you not to have images of Spielberg's movie, Saving Private Ryan, conjured in your in your mind almost immediately. It's like the old Dennis and Miller so, joke about JFK. Where were you when JFK was shot? And, and most people think you mean the right. Oliver Stone movie. Right. <laughs> and uh, so, so this is the thing: is, is that is that cinema does have this power because it makes sense of it. It, it literally visualizes and narrativizes and contextualizes um, historical events and debates and processes, um, and, and, and it, it imprints itself on us. And, and so the, the cinematic depiction becomes inseparable from the historical reality that underlies it. And this is especially problematic when it comes to subjects like UFOs, which are not acknowledged by consensus reality. So the UFO phenomenon is actually rejected wholesale by consensus reality, by officialdom, and therefore our only understanding of the phenomenon comes if you actually take the time to go out and read specialist books on the subject, for example, or listen to you know listen to radio shows such as this. And, and you have to go out and do specialist research. Most, the vast majority of people do not do this, and so therefore the vast majority of people are getting their knowledge, so to speak, of UFOs through entertainment media, through cinema specifically. And what cinema does, as I say, is it blurs the line between fact and fantasy. Well, talking Hollywood, about. Uh... You know, blurring the lines, uh, Disney, the, the corporate entity known as Disney, uh, you go to great lengths in the book to talk about Walt Disney and, and Ward Kimball and uh, one of the animators and, and the cat and mouse game that Disney played with the United States Air Force in trying to get footage and the kinds of things that the Air Force allowed Disney to get and then um, retreated from that position. So this whole cat and mouse game and this corporate entity called Disney, uh, you know, who's in charge of implanting a lot of children and even adults today with with different kinds of messages uh could you talk to us a little bit about the role that disney has played in, in really kind of commandeering reality in certain ways well disney um and ufos go back to uh the the early 1950s and the cia robertson panel of course famously recommended or highlighted disney as a ideal conduit for its um ufo perception management efforts so in 1953, when the Robertson panel made its, its recommendations to debunk and demystify UFOs and to otherwise manage p popular perceptions of this phenomenon, they, they did specifically um, single out Disney as being, as being you know, key to this. Now, uh, you can look at, so for example, in, in, in the mid-1950s, uh, this is according to the testimony of uh, Disney animator Ward Kimball, who is now uh, deceased, but who was one of uh, Disney's famous nine old men, one of these great, um, hugely respected early animators with the studio. Um, Kimball, in 1979, stated publicly that in the mid-50s, uh, Disney had been approached by the Air Force to, uh, uh, to participate in the making of a documentary that would help acclimate the public to the idea of alien life and visitation. <clears throat> and as part of this documentary, the Air Force were to supply Disney with real UFO footage. And... So the animators actually got to work on the documentary. They spent several weeks on it. Eventually, the Air Force liaison for the project told Kimball uh, and others at Disney that, unfortunately, the footage was going to be retracted and, uh, and ultimately the, the cooperation of the Air Force was not granted. Uh, and so Disney went on and made a number of 
animated uh, shorts about uh, life in space and about uh, space exploration, uh, man on the moon, on Mars, etc. Celebrated animated documentaries, but not um, not this 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 uh, this revelatory doc- documentary that was planned. Um, so that that began a trend in the 1950s where Air Force personnel offered footage to filmmakers for the purpose of acclamation and then withdrew it at the last minute, sending the production into, you know, d- down the tubes, essentially. The same happened in, in uh, the early 1970s with the Robert Emmenegger documentary called UFOs Past, Present and Future, where allegedly UFO landing footage was offered, um, where you actually had uh, supposedly a, uh, a, a flying saucer land at Holloman Air Force Base and extraterrestrials exit the craft and uh, depart the scene with delegates of the U.S. government. This was offered to Emmenegger and his, his crew and then ultimately withdrawn uh, and the Watergate scandal was cited as the reason for its withdrawal because uh, it would have been too uh, uh, too uh, too much of a shock for the public to, to take. Uh, you know, Nixon and aliens was just too much in the, at the same time time, time period. So, uh, and then you had you had more footage offered to Linda Morton Howe, for example, during the production of one of her documentaries in the early 1980s. Uh, you had Air Force personnel, excuse me, strike that, naval intelligence personnel, claiming to be naval intelligence personnel, approach um, Bryce Zabel and his production partner, uh, Brent Friedman, in the mid-1990s for the production of Dark Skies. Um, and there are other examples in between. So you've had all of these examples where uh, officialdom has approached filmmakers, offered inside knowledge or footage, and then withdrawn it. Um, or, well, in the case of the Zabel, uh, uh, Dark Skies and Bryce Sable, they didn't withdraw it, actually. Um, Bryce Sable and his production partner actually backed away because they were so freaked out by the whole thing. But, um, but there does seem to be a trend, and it's, uh, it seems to be a, disin- uh, a disinformation strategy. Um, was there any real footage to offer? I'm sure there was real footage. Was there actual alien landing footage? Mm, debatable. <laughs> Certainly no proof of it. Um, the filmmakers themselves never saw the footage, but were only told of its existence. Um, so, so it's very hard to make sense of of, uh, of these efforts. Um, I do attempt to uh, in the book, and I do paint a picture of a disin- uh, disinformative strategy dating back at least to the early 1980s. Uh, and the goal, I think, has been to convince the UFO community and uh, in turn, the, the public at large, that the U.S. government or elements within it, within it do have a very clear understanding of the UFO phenomenon. But, but more significantly, that they actually have working relationships and treaties with the intelligences behind the phenomenon. All right, listen, Robbie. Understanding. I, pardon me, I've got to jump in once again. Technologies involved. All right, Robbie, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out. We'll get you to finish off that point uh, before I so rudely interrupted you, and we'll uh, come back on the other side. Robbie Graham, Silver Screen Saucers, and Victor Vigiani in studio. Zeland Communications back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Robbie Graham is with us, the author of Silver Screen Saucers, sorting fact from fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies, and Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland Communications. Uh, 
have, um, let's say, for example, I don't know, the Office of Naval Intelligence or someone in the Pentagon, have they been even more overt about getting involved in Hollywood productions? Have they, for example, funded major studios or set up their own wing uh, uh, or art production company? Uh, there are examples uh, of the CIA, for example, setting up production companies um, in the past, and these have been well documented in the case of Argo, for example, um, and getting involved in, in that capacity. Um, but when it comes to funding on, on, on the whole, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really a myth and a misunderstanding that, that CIA needs to fund Hollywood. Hollywood is a multi-billion dollar industry. It doesn't need to, to, to ask CIA for money. Um, so that's not how the CIA exerts its influence. It exerts its influence, um, uh, and for example, so the, CIA, so the agencies that have influence in Hollywood are the CIA, the Department of Defense, and really every branch of, of the military, um, and NASA as well. But the, the Department of Defense is the most influential overtly, and it has this open relationship with Hollywood that goes back several decades, whereby the DOD offers extensive um, hardware, personnel, and on-set advice in exchange for the right to edit scripts. So the DOD has considerable control over script content on the movies it, it, it advises on. Um, and, of course, that has that can shape the message of a film or, or even a franchise, as it has done, for example, with Transformers, with the Transformers movies. Those are really Department of Defense products, as is, for example, Battleship, the Alien Invasion Battleship, as is Battle Los Angeles, and a number of others. And um, the CIA is, is trickier. It exerts its influence much more subtly and on the whole covertly. Um, CIA was, in, was, was uh, in, involved in Hollywood dating back to the early 1950s and got involved in a big way in 1953 onwards, um, which not coincidentally is the same year of the CIA Robertson panel uh, formed and made its recommendations as well. And... Uh, so it was early early 1950s that the CIA really truly recognised the huge potential of, of cinema to shape public perceptions, not only of UFOs but of all sorts of hot button national security issues and and of really mundane issues as well. Like um, you know the CIA in the early early 50s and mid 50s and through to the 60s was covertly tampering with scripts to uh, change messages relating to colonial history, for example, and race relations and and you know relative you know these are not not insignificant, of course, but you know, compared to the idea of of, of, of an extraterrestrial threat, for example, then then uh, you know it give, it puts it into context. You know, if if indeed uh, there was knowledge during this time period of a, of a of a non-human element to the UFO phenomenon, and in fact the CIA's own files suggest that 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 was something that was being considered, uh, then certainly the CIA would have gone out of its way to uh, tamper with the content of UFO theme scripts. Of course, the science fiction genre was dominated by UFO movies at the time. So it's fair to say that, that a number of UFO movies almost certainly would have come in, uh, into the sights of, of, uh, of the CIA. So, and there are a number of examples you can point to during this time period as well that do bear the fingerprints of the CIA. Um, so the CIA officially now liaises with Hollywood in an open capacity, and this goes back to the mid-1990s with the CIA uh, media liaison office. Um, and it, 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 it operates in much the same way as the Department of Defense does, except it has less to offer in terms of hardware. So it really offers script advice and, and access to its Langley headquarters, for example, to increase authenticity of the movie. But the CIA involvement continues to go much, much deeper than that. And uh, there's evidence to suggest that the CIA has assets that every you know, um, 
choke point in the industry from the scriptwriters, uh, uh, you know, producers, directors, studio heads. Uh, every point of, of considerable influence has, has been, um, uh, you know, infiltrated by, by the agency. And this, and this is, you know, uh, you mentioned, Victor, about the, uh, the idea of uh, news media infiltration, and this is so thoroughly documented by, um, by Terry Hansen in, in regard to UFOs in his book. Uh, but this is also previously documented by Carl Bernstein, for example, um, and, you know, is it, even in the mid-1970s, it was the CIA's um, reaches into the news media were exposed. Uh, and, and it, it, you know, there was, there, was, there was over 400 um, news outlets and, uh, 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 and uh, papers, magazines, TV networks that were infiltrated by the CIA. It had 400 journalists, rather, um, working in a... Uh, in a, in a uh, Kind of a voluntary or paid capacity for the agency, so they had a, a complete grip of of news media um, as early as the mid 1970s, and it obviously goes goes without saying that this has continued to this day. Although the uh, the the proof of that is is slimmer because the CIA has this unwritten policy of nothing on paper. Um, but if you want to control how anyone thinks about anything, then you simply have to control the media. It goes without saying. So so. You know, the CIA, the DOD, any element of officialdom really recognizes the significance of, 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 of these media. But entertainment media is also extremely important, arguably more important than, than, uh, than news media, because it's seen as soft, it's seen as entertainment, it's seen as fluff. And therefore, the messages that you impart are, are subtler and they are more readily accepted. People view news media with a certain amount of suspicion, although we generally accept whatever we hear. Um, most people, you know, there are a, a, a growing number of people who view with suspicion what they what they read and and uh, and, and uh, hear and see through through news media. Whereas entertainment media is still seen as escapism, and uh, and that's why it's of course so so uh, so important to to really understand how how entertainment media has been um, hijacked really by by uh, CIA, by Department of Defense, by uh, NASA by, you know, I mean, even the, uh, the, the new movie The Martian is essentially a recruitment ad for NASA. All right, uh, Robbie, we have to take yet another time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss Hollywood's UFO movies. Robbie Graham, Silver Screen Saucers, Victor Vigiani in Studio Zeland Communications. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, last segment with Robbie Graham, Silver Screen Saucer, sorting fact from fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies. Victor Vigiani, take it away. Actually, I want to uh, talk about some of the actual movies and the influence that some of these larger agencies have had. And specifically, you, know, you talk about E.T., the movie, and Men in Black, and Falling Skies, and War of the Worlds. But I don't think there's any other movie that I can recollect uh, that's more powerful in not only just its message, but in the way uh, a larger agency influenced uh, David Spielberg, or Steven Spielberg, to um, to come up with uh, something suitable. And I understand that uh, Spielberg was issued issued uh, a litany of, of, uh, of reasons why he should not make Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind. Um, what was that all about? <clears throat> yeah, Spielberg, of course, was a, a obsessed with UFOs from an early age, and, and Close Encounters was the, was the end product, I guess, of, uh, or the culmination of his 
childhood and teenage obsession with UFOs. <clears throat> and this was a passion project for him, and it was heavily ufological. It was based on real case reports and um, benefited from the advice on set of um, J.L. and Hynek. And even the, the name of the film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of course, is based on, uh, is taken from Hynek's uh, classification system for UFOs. So this was an explicitly ufological movie. Um, it was science speculation, as Spielberg said, rather than science fiction. And when Spielberg approached the Air Force and NASA in around 1976 for their cooperation on his 1977 movie, both of them declined uh, their, their assistance. And the Air Force declined on the grounds that it had in the past, which is that, um, uh, you know, they will not lend support to UFO-themed movies because to do so would, would contravene their policy on UFOs and their policy is that UFOs do not exist and we will not support any, any project which, which claims that they do or encourages the belief that they do. And uh, so, I should, so although today we have heavy involvement in UFO-themed productions from, from the DOD, as I've just mentioned in terms of battleship, transformers, etc., uh, up to a point in the 1970s and early 1980s, it was the policy of the Air Force uh, generally speaking, not to involve themselves in these productions and to decline their, their assistance. And that extended to Spielberg's movie in 1977. And then when Spielberg approached NASA um, requesting their assistance, they actually went so far, according to Spielberg, to send him a 20-page letter specifically requesting that he not make the movie at all and that they were worried about the influence of the movie on popular perceptions of the phenomenon that uh, his movie would incite mass hysteria and UFOs would be to the public what sharks were after Jaws. Uh, you know, because Spiel, Spielberg's blockbusting Jaws was the, was the most successful film of all time at that point. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so they were worried that this, this film would have the same effect with UFOs. They didn't want their, their lines flooded again with UFO reports and they were convinced that, that this movie would do that. So they said, you know, please don't make the movie. And um, so Spielberg cited that letter and their response as, as, proof to him that indeed the Air Force really did take this subject seriously. Let's, um, um, in the time that remains, Robbie, let's talk about disclosure if we could. In, in your thoughts, uh, the, the current state of the disclosure movement efforts by various individuals, uh, Stephen Bassett and others, uh, and their initiatives to, to pressure governments, specifically the United States government, uh, to to come clean or to state, you know, what they know about UFOs and ETs. Are you at all frustrated, as, you know, many of us are, about the, the glacial, <laughs> um, the glacial movement, uh, in, in terms of disclosure? Yeah, well, you know, I've spoken about this publicly, and I, you know, the problem really with the disclosure mindset is that it declares an end to the UFO enigma. It says, in essence, we know what they are, which is extraterrestrial spacecraft, nothing more exotic, nothing more, more, uh, nothing stranger than that. I mean, that's strange enough, but, but to be honest, I, I'm of the opinion that the phenomenon uh, is more multifaceted than mere extraterrestrial visitation, although extraterrestrials may well be involved. Um, but, you know, all the while, the movement, the disclosure movement, you know, it, it looks to officialdom as a sort of unfair parent figure, and it tugs very incessantly at the leg of power. But, you know, officialdom actually isn't listening, as far as I can tell. And more importantly, it doesn't really have all the answers. Um, now, it does seem likely that elements within official power structures do have more pieces 
of the UFO puzzle uh, at their fingertips than the rest of us do. But it's extremely improbable that they've succeeded in solving the puzzle. Um, and despite appearances, you know, and the power of their egos, uh, the secret keepers, whoever they are, are essentially in a universe that's 13 billion years old. Some, you know, uh, they're, they're monkeys like the rest of us. And I would say that they're flailing around for answers, um, just as, as, as many other people are. And, you know, they struggle to understand the underlying nature of UFO phenomena, much less to explain it. But just because you recognize that there's an extraterrestrial or otherworldly um, component to this, and just because you may even have had hands-on hands on technologies, I mean, and there's no evidence, there's really no evidence that, that there has been, um, no, no, no smoking gun. Um, there's a lot of suggestion and, and, uh, and rumor and testimony, but there's no smoking gun that that's the case. Um, but even if that is the case, um, it, it doesn't mean that you have a full grasp of what you're dealing with. And so, you know, what can our elite parents figures possibly divulge to us without appearing ignorant and confused and losing a huge weight of their to say that it's better for them to stay silent while subtly encouraging a belief that they actually do have all the answers and that they're all knowing. And what this does is it creates this um, this desire, particularly within the conspiracy communities, to actually look to officialdom as 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 uh, as a figure of of, um, of salvation and enlightenment. You know, and so I would say that should the government or any element within officialdom ever come clean, so to speak, on UFOs. You know, we should all be immediately and extremely suspicious because UFO truth, by way of any official power structure, will not be truth at all. It can't be. It will be whatever truth least vilifies and incriminates uh, the people who have kept the secrets. The, the now, whole, yeah, the whole dilemma, though, I guess, what you're describing uh, uh, is really the, the dilemma that we distrust our political leaders and then they come out and say something about the UFOET reality. Why should we believe them? Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly, you know, this is it. This is the, the ultimate irony of the disclosure movement is that, you know, by imagining all the UFO, uh, you know, all, all of the answers to the UFO mystery to be out of public reach and deep in the bowels of the national security state, it actually places power into the hands of officialdom whilst disempowering the individual. And, you know, it's basically, it's, it's a very strange um, dichotomy now where, where, we, where people within the UFO conspiracy community, for example, they deeply distrust officialdom while simultaneously and constantly looking to officialdom for the truth. Now, that's, that's, that's a fundamental flaw here. Something's, got, something's not right with that. If you deeply distrust, the people who are keeping secrets, why would you suddenly accept everything they have to say yeah. on so-called disclosure day? Yeah. It's not going to be, assuming such a day ever comes, it will not be the truth. It will be their truth. Her it truth will be whatever yeah. truth least vilifies and incriminates. If, yeah. if Stephen Bassett was here right now, and I, I don't want to pretend to speak for him, but what he would say, in, in uh, not necessarily contra- trying to contradict you, but... Uh, what he would say is that we're really not looking for the kind of information that most people think that we might be looking for. All they're asking, I understand, Steve's, yeah, I understand Steve's position. It, yeah, and it, and they it want the government to acknowledge it. That's all. A simple yeah. acknowledgement. Yeah. But they, this is this is with respect to Steve. Uh, you know, it's fantasy because you cannot have a simple acknowledgement and leave it at that. You can't come out and go, "Hey guys, um, yeah, just uh, before you carry on with stuff, just I just wanted to quickly say, uh, yeah, there's there's non-human advanced intelligences they've been interacting with us maybe for thousands of years 
certainly since 1947. Um, we've, you know, we, you know, we've been studying them secretly. It, it, everything we know about the universe is, is wrong. Um, okay, carry on. Go, go ahead. Carry on now with with, with life. Um, no, you can't just have an acknowledgement because then the thousands and thousands of profound questions follow and answers will be demanded. Now, it's impossible for them to demand those answers, to, to provide those answers, um, because they don't have them, right? They may have some of those answers, and even if they had those answers, some of the answers, why would they, why would they give them, and why would they give them truthfully? There's simply no way of verifying anything that any of these people say. And it's just, you know, they are fundamentally and inherently and historically deceptive. Okay, the CIA is, is a deceptive agency. That's what it, that's its trade. Trade in deception. It's not all of a sudden going to change its spots and, and come out and be this open, transparent agency. Uh, you know, the National Security Agency, which snoops on everyone all the time, including what we're saying right now, is not all of a sudden going to be going. Oh, let's, it's all, let's all just let's all just share everything. Let's just let's just provide the public with the truth. It's a fantasy, and so and I, I recognise that Steve doesn't, but that Steve would agree with me on that. But you can't have a simple acknowledgement because it doesn't end there. The acknowledgement is not the end, it's the beginning. And they don't want a beginning. You know, the people who who are desperately trying to, to understand this subject behind the scenes and trying to keep a lid on it to an extent that they can whilst simultaneously managing perceptions of it, they, they you know, they operate best in the shadows. Uh, and there's nothing in it for them to release this information to the public. Although I'm sure discussions have, have been held uh, over the over the decades, to you know about the possibility of bringing this out in some way, but the, the, just think of the of the of the multitude of problems that arise from a so-called simple acknowledgement. You know, no one wants an acknowledgement. Essentially, is the end of is the end of our era, um, and no one wants that. With it, it, you know, behind the scenes, it's all about maintaining the status quo. It's about maintaining the socio-economic order, and when you say that we're not alone in the universe, um, uh, but moreover, that they're actually here, or we've had interactions with them, then that's, that's a whole, whole other thing. Um, and it's even a very slippy slope to make the simple announcement that we've discovered microbial life, because that then starts to, you know, starts to raise questions. Well, if, we've got, if it's definitely microbial life, then the laws of evolution dictate that it's probably evolved into intelligent life in the expanses of a vast universe. And if it's involved, if it's, if it's evolved into intelligent life, all of a sudden, then we, we recognize that UFO reports have some substance to them. And in fact, ideas of alien visitation are, are, are much more plausible. And then that raises, that puts more pressure on, on, on the government. And um, so it's a very, very slippy slope. And, and they're completely disinclined to, to get on that slope at all. They'd rather just stay away from it. Well, never mind, let, never mind microbial life. We have this, this whole idea of a potential alien megastructure in this bizarre dimming star that we may have to deal with, and we'll follow that story with, with great interest. Uh, Robbie, sadly, out of time. Uh, congratulations on, on the book, and very quickly, uh, how do people uh, learn more? Uh, yeah, you can uh, visit my website, which is silverscreensources.uk. Uh, the book is available uh, widely through uh, international sellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, etc. You can easily find it online and you can find more information about it and other articles on my work um, at silverscreensources.uk. So thanks very much. Robbie, thank you. Appreciate it. Good talking with you again. Victor, well, 
Your thoughts as we say goodnight? Well, once again, the, the level of clarity that this, this fellow has brought to the, the whole issue is another step up for us. That, that's what I believe. And anybody who wants to seek clarity on the issue, I think they really need to look at this book in, in a way, in an objective way, and to see that there's much more to this than just lights in the sky and, and all the other arguments that we use to try to figure out what the heck is going on. All right. Thank you, Victor. Zeland Communications. And uh, my thanks once again, Ian Robertson. Twisting the Niles and the Dobbs, Albert Vinzel, uh, for all his hard work as per usual. Back next week with a brand new program. Don't uh, don't miss it. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.